This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. All right, welcome back. End of year Owens Recovery Science Podcast number 51, baby. We just did 50 and Kyle forgot to, to let us know that we hit a milestone, dude. When I turned 50, I know. I had a COVID 50th birthday. Um, and so 50s, you know, it's a big deal to me, Kyle. And you just let that one slide through the crack. So end of year, we are doing a, a different style here. We don't have a guest on. We're not doing a paper. We're just going to do an end of year wrap up. Talk about what the year was for blood flow restriction in 2022. Interesting things we might have learned or did not learn. Um, the whole damn what the heck happened up in New York scenario. If, if people haven't yeah. heard about that one um as well as whatever else we got a lot of questions that were sent in so we're going to hit on some of these questions as well uh, we had our christmas party saturday night i'm still i think hung over from the from the saturday night christmas party <laughs> we got zach you weren't here man but it got wild at the end by the end um we had Eastem on our it guy's forehead and cranking it up <laughs> no uh no 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 hiding bourbon bottles yeah, yeah. I, know. I, know. I was really disappointed. Like, I was really disappointed about that, Zach. It was at it was at my house. So I would have hit my own bourbon bottle. <laughs> <laughs> we don't bring that up. My wife still gets pissed that I stole bourbon from the hotel. Bar. I, I can I can attest to that. I actually I did actually bring it up at the Christmas party, and I was like, I was kind of disappointed. I missed it last year, and immediately Johnny's wife's eyes like cut over it. Hit <laughs> I just changed the vibe. <laughs> uh, How did you get arrested, Johnny? Stealing <laughs> <laughs> bourbon from behind the bar. <laughs> the final straw was Johnny mentioned his still missing jacket. I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. Low, low crawling in there and then somehow losing the jacket though. <laughs> I lost my damn credit card yesterday. I think I left it at a restaurant. Oh, my life. Oh. All right. So Kyle's leading the way on this end of your podcast. So Kyle, take it away, brother. Well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna lead a podcast, Johnny, you know, by God, the first thing we're gonna talk about oh, Jesus. is something that knows Zach really wants to talk about, something we failed to talk about on our last podcast, and that is. Our Justin Verlander, Astros, our friends, the Houston Astros <laughs> <laughs> are the World Series champions. And so I get to I get to actually uh, hold my head high around Los Angeles again for a because <laughs> I've been hanging it for a while. So I'm excited about that. It's good. And then but losing Verlander, man, that I mean, we should have done everything we can to keep yeah. everybody on this team. But oh well. I think it, you're, I not, you're, too. you're not you're not competing with Cohen. Uh, I mean, that guy is whatever he needs yeah. to do to buy a World Series. Yeah, making, making it rain, baby. Forty three million for a yeah. year. That's hey, yeah. we you know, we had a starting pitcher on the Astros that's pretty stinking good. He didn't even pitch yeah. really in the playoffs. So I don't know. I don't know how many 40 year olds Cohen's going to throw money at to try to try to throw fastballs. But uh, I think I'll, I think I'll stick with our younger guys. I'm, I'm all right with where we are. I'm, Verlander, he did a great job and he will be missed for sure. Um, we'll miss his wife the, in the stands. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's complaining about nobody. nobody nobody's uh, happy to see. Wait, what's his wife's name? Kate Upton. Kate, Kate Upton. Kate Upton. Kate Upton. 
I couldn't. I thought I was starting to say Kate Hudson, but I knew that wasn't right. Yeah, about six cup sizes different. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) I just know I know Kate Hudson because she she trains with that guy, Ben Bruno. And Ben Bruno is if you don't follow Ben Bruno on Instagram, he's a fantastic follow. He's a celebrity trainer guy. And he does little bits about side planks and he's 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 laying on his side on his couch talking about planking and how great it is. So um I just find that find that rather entertaining. Um so anyway, we digress. Um so yeah, we're gonna do a just kind of a recap kind of podcast here. Throw some questions. We threw a bunch of questions out on social media um and via email to just sort of see what things people were curious about. Um, I got I, I put it out like an hour beforehand before we we're going to record this today to see if we got any kind of last minute stuff. And the very first thing that came back, you know what it was? It was it was Michael Siegenthaler, our buddy. Uh, he's yeah. just south of Tulsa a bit. Siegenthaler is he's a literal like cattle rancher, like he raises his own cattle and everything. Grass fed cattle. I got to tell you, best steak I've ever had in my life. Actually, I was I did a class out there. And we went back to his house and he did a steak flight for me. So wow. we went prime rib or excuse me. Um, what am I thinking oh, of? Come on, come on, man. Come Strip on, man. Yeah. Ribeye. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just totally went blank. We went yeah. filet, uh, strip, ribeye, and sirloin. And nice. just tasted them like side by side which I don't know if y'all have ever done that, but it was super interesting to do that and just kind of get the different flavor profiles. Uh, filet was absolutely the best, um, but then strip was actually better than ribeye, and I, I was surprised by that. No way, man. Least, no, way. Yeah. no way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. dead yeah. serious. I didn't expect and, it at all. I always and, know ribeye. but And and where where did the, uh, what was it, a top sirloin? Oh, uh, I don't know. Because yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, they they call that the poor man's filet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, 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 not sure. But uh, it was it was very interesting and super cool. Um, so anyway, Segan Thaler, he wanted to know if I have any actual evidence, like controlled studies, for why left brisket is better than right brisket. You have to explain left brisket if you haven't. Have you done that Zach, before? You want to explain it? Well, Zach knows it. Well, Zach knows it. He 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 may or may not have turned me on to it. My dad I tells absolutely me absolutely first. But Zach definitely jogged my memory on it. So yeah. carry on, Zach. Tell us the story. Well, I'm, it's just because we do uh, barbecue here in Georgia. Oh, oh yeah, boy. yeah. I mean, let me I, tell you about Zach's barbecue sauce. <laughs> I, I I did fire up the pit boss that you recommend for me. I uh, fired that up last night to do my nice. do my snack sticks. Uh, not to deviate too far off topic, but elk I think is far better than beef. But we'll. Yeah. Save that for another one hundred one hundred percent. I'm down to I'm down either, to be convinced. Okay, um, yeah. it, but basically, what it has to it, it goes to is the tenderness of the the left versus the right brisket, and supposedly the the theory is that um, beef lie on the left side, and then when they go to basically stand up, they push with their right heck so to speak and so it creates more tension and it's um uh, just tougher cut of meat that's more developed it's leaner it doesn't have as much fat and doesn't have as much flavor not as tender that 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 is the theory behind the left versus right brisket 
But no RCT. We've never seen a study, (laughs) right? No, that's not true. I have a study of beef lying behavior. I show it in my course every time when yeah. I talk about left brisket because we start we start yeah. talking about all the inner marbling of the fat and everything and and you know I find ways to talk about barbecue um, regardless. So. Well, we just know how they lay. We don't know if it tastes better. Yeah, right? we, this is true. Yeah, we don't have sense. a side to side tasting. So I guess really we should put this back on Michael since he's an actual cattle yeah. rancher. Yeah, we actually have the ability to conduct this study you know in conjunction with with Siegen Thaler so impact rehab wellness and um it is not hold on it's not okmulgi it's okmulgi i think is correct is how you say the town it's just south of tulsa about 45 minutes south of tulsa um we can so we'll be doing a we'll be doing a a brisket um tasting study in the in the in the future through all right mike we'll 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 fund it man whatever you need from us we'll fund this (laughs) because we need an answer i've got a smoker yeah he's gonna blind us to left and right yeah send it to us with a number on it we cook it same temperature same smoke same everything and and do a tasting and we'll find out i'm I'm in and that's us making the world better right (laughs) 2023 yeah so more to come on that y'all be sure to stay be sure to stay tuned um so we got some cool some a few uh questions uh over all our social channels and, and everything um this first one we're just going to kind of throw out i think probably johnny and, and ben will sort of sort of tackle this answer here it comes from jordan Lindbergh, who is at augustana university okay i don't i think that's in maybe where is that you guys know where it's augustana? in the dakotas i think yeah. i'm not sure or good grief i was going to say florida uh, you're thinking st augustine that's St. Uh, Augustine. That's, yeah, St. That's St. Augustine. probably true. Yeah, this is true. Not so. Not Florida. Uh, Augustana is not <laughs> Florida. <laughs> we we've established that. Ooh, good. Let me get that out of the way. Um, Jordan said that in March of 2019, we had some MLS athletic trainers on the podcast. That was throwing it back. That was Kurt Andrews from Sporting KC. That was uh, Paul Lombardo from the Seattle Timbers. No. Not that's Portland Timbers, Seattle Sounders. There you go. And then um, it was Reed, Reed from Chicago. Uh-huh. Chicago. Crazy Reed. Reed Whitney, right? <laughs> Whitney? Yep. Yeah. Um, from the Chicago, was it Fire? Did they mm-hmm. change that name? Is it still the Fire? Still the Fire, I, it, I think. For some reason. Yeah. I thought for some reason I heard that they had changed that name. I don't know why. Why, why you thought fire, fire got offended, so they had to change it to something else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I know exactly where. Do not go where you're about to think about going. This so, just shows that Kyle yeah. doesn't keep up with MLS, which is yeah. 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 just yeah. 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 Sorry, yeah. MLS. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I do not follow MLS closely. I don't follow any sport closely except baseball, basically. Uh, so anyway, we had those guys on the podcast. Great podcast. Reed had like a dryer or something going in the background. So mm-hmm. um, if you hear yeah. this annoying noise, that's that's Reed's fault. Uh, <laughs> something going on there. But they talked a lot about um, using BFR for some recovery and performance strategies, um, using it with endurance exercise. Mm-hmm. And then recently, in the last month, the Philadelphia Eagles, Zach's NFL team, there was a, a cool little social media post of their guys on bikes peddling it looked like it was probably like the o-line or something it was yeah it was they were all on bicycles peddling with bfr after the game so 
So he was kind of curious, you know, sort of like what evidence is there and, and, and any kind of insight we might sort of provide into parameters about using VFR in almost more like of an endurance kind of recovery session, um, any sort of protocols, limb occlusion pressure, that sort of thing. So I don't know, Johnny, you want to maybe start that and then we'll let Ben kind of chip in a bit. Yeah, so I and I think what he's getting at too. Well, not only parameters, but you know, what's the difference in maybe doing a bike BFR for recovery versus just using an IPC type protocol? And so, yep. we, I think we've always fallen back on. And, and when Patterson and I spoke at CSM, this was thrown at him. You know, what would you do if you had the choice of just IPC or or doing something that has a contraction? He said, for for anything, I would add a contraction to it. And so I, I think that's one thing that if, if your players or whoever you're going to do this with are up to at least doing a little bit of activity with a cuff on, you're probably going to get a little bit more bang for your buck, we would think, just from a mechanistic and physiological standpoint, than just having the cuffs on themselves. But just the cuffs on themselves is, is easy. Um, and sometimes if you're smoked after a game or something like that, I mean, I can't believe these O-linemen are after that game are just ready to jump on a bike and go. I can barely motivate myself to do the bike on, on just a day when I haven't done crap. Uh, <laughs> but but good on them, you know, and we know those guys well up there and, and they're super well trained and been doing this for a long time. Um, so I, you know, I think they, they, they obviously know what's the right direction to go. The other thing with adding just the bike to it. And if you take our course or here, you know, Jeremy's got a good paper on this as well. Um, there's the passive application of BFR. There's the low load resistance application of BFR, but the bike or walking protocol lives in the middle of that. And so you get a little bit of muscle contraction with these bike or walking protocols, uh, but, but not, not as much as you get with, with lifting low loads. So throwing the cuff on after a game and doing a little bit of contraction on a bike or walking on a treadmill is going to, uh, is, is going to probably stimulate a little bit more than just laying there passively. I think if you're saying what's some interesting research from a bike protocol with BFR um, from a recovery standpoint, I think Danny Christensen's study was probably the coolest one in my mind where he had individuals train. What was it? Six weeks. I it think six, six weeks, six weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm um on a bike with one leg had a cuff on it the other leg didn't and then he measured the ability for glucose uptake um after doing that six-week protocol and the glucose uptake on the leg that had the cuff on was significantly higher so he basically recharged the muscle and, and he showed it exactly the mechanism was the glute 4 receptor which is like a straw that comes out of your muscle and soaks up all that glucose so they made them more sensitive to glucose uptake and, and actually got the straw, the glute four to take it up. And so if these guys are doing that regularly, just kind of six weeks of training on a bike, even just after the game, they might be making themselves more sensitive to, from a recovery standpoint of just getting more juice back into the muscle. So um, I, I think that's, that's probably in my mind, kind of the coolest way to look at it. Ben. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I think, you know, we don't really have, any research at this point that's done any kind of comparison on which would be better. You know, it's really speculative on, you know, is exercise better than passive? And I have to think the exercise would be, I mean, based on everything we think, you know, it's probably just doing more than what we get from a passive standpoint. But like you mentioned, passive still does something. Um, we've had several podcasts talk about parameters. And so that's what we haven't really gone through on, on the question here is, 
<clears throat> from an IPC standpoint, it's really simple. Parameters are basically you need to get 100% occlusion if you're not doing exercise. The most common is five minutes inflation followed by five minutes deflation, and you do three rounds of that. And from a recovery standpoint, it sounds like you probably want to get that started as quickly as you can after the competition or the exercise is completed. Uh, or before. To really get, yeah, or before, or 24 hours before. Yeah, uh, or three yeah. times before. Or three, yeah, or, or <laughs> just do it every day leading up to it. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so, um, and then with the exercise, I mean, I, I think just kind of sticking to the parameters that we know as of right now, you know, on the leg, this hasn't really been looked at as much with endurance as far as occlusive pressure. You know, we've we've always kind of recommended the 80% occlusion on the leg just because that's what we have from resistance exercise, but that's pretty freaking brutal on the bike. Yeah. Um, so yeah. if you are going to go 80% occlusion, maybe you're just doing shorter rounds of occlusion and having some sort of inflate deflate happening, depending on the time you're spending on the bike. Maybe you're doing something like Luke's pain protocol where it's like three minutes on one minute deflate and you do something like that or five on one off. Um, or you could potentially, you know, I think go at a little lower pressure if you're going to do a little longer duration on the bike, you know, you could probably take it down just a bit. So that's, that's where I'm at with it. And most common thing that we see in the literature is somewhere around 15 minutes of exercise on the bike as a pretty common time point. And yeah, it kind of comes out to the same amount of occlusive time, you know, you got 15 minutes occlusive time IPC, you should probably hit, you know, we think target around 15 minutes you know, I mean, we're having to just speculate of, of what everyone's been, has done and published, but 15 minutes of endurance exercise, it, you know, kind of is our, maybe the minimum threshold, who knows, we really don't know that. Um, but IPC maybe is more catabolic sparing and yep. adding a contraction, maybe you're getting a little bit of the catabolic and the anabolic side. So you're getting more of a little bit of a one-two punch. And just to review, the studies that have looked at IPC have shown less muscle damage through blood draw on creatine kinase levels, as well as a, a quicker return to, to performance, be it strength or some of these performance tests like sprints and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you get there faster, you know, 72, 48 hours versus the control groups were typically still significantly down on strength. Yep. What about you guys? Anything? No, I was just going to say, I, th- I think, you know, kind of on my end, sort of tidying this this question up a bit, I think oh, number one, it goes it back to, no, 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 I, I did, you did for sure. But I think it goes back to, um, well, what did the athlete just do, right? And so that's kind of where Johnny's coming at this from the perspective of, man, these offensive linemen, they just finished a game and here they are on a bike kind of exercising and doing something that's somewhat intense where, you know, you might just kind of think of like right after a game, maybe you do kind of do like a passive sort of thing then inflate deflate, but then perhaps during a week, maybe you're trying to kind of help that recovery by adding, adding a bit of exercise and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think it's kind of a, an interesting question to say, all right, does it, does the duration matter or could we just use like an 80% and accelerate some fatigue and maybe only just do two minutes, one, one minute on pedaling or two minutes on pedaling a bike, maybe an inflate or a re or a deflate of a minute. And then you do say four rounds of that. Could you shrink that? Could you shrink that time down, you know, by kind of accelerating 
some of that hypoxia. There's a there's a ton of questions in terms of parameters, I think, out there still. So I mean, you're building it off of what did the athlete do um, and what can we get them doing, always kind of favoring um, getting the, the individual moving, getting some muscular contraction and that sort of thing. So uh, that's that's where I where I kind of land, where I kind of land on all of it. And some of these some of the teams have kind of messed around with in, in particular the passive parameters, because even just asking an athlete to sit for 25 minutes and do five on five off is is kind of a big ask. So could you shrink it to five on maybe one or two minutes off uh, and then and then cycle through that and shave shave a bit of time there? Um, could you do a shorter inflate? At, and again, in this scenario, we're talking passive, hundred um, percent. There's so many variables, you know. It's going to be so hard to variables. figure that out. I would love to, yep. you know. There's these responders, non-responders, all sorts yep. of things. And then it's like, now let's change the variables of rest periods, yeah. you know, or inflation periods. Because yeah, I'm with you, man. That 25 minutes—that's a long time to just <clears> long time to lay there. And we're we're living off of animal data to show us that from the IPC yeah. kind of medical literature that's been looking at this for organ issues or, or brain problems. So yeah. Well, I think the other cool. thing too um, is also just kind of considering, well, what sport are we even talking about? You know, and, and, and does this, does this application even potentially have a benefit here? Cause maybe it's challenging the system in a way that the training for the sport does not with football. You can kind of see that a little bit, you know, cause football is mm-hmm. kind of like high intensity, quick, very, very type two, very kind of sort of anaerobic. Short burst, you know, yeah. Short burst, and here you have kind of this lengthy sort of slow building hypoxia, you know, is just the the demands of the application of the cuff and the duration of it. Is, is that providing some sort of benefit to, say, an American football player where it might not to like a like a European football player? If we're to use the, uh, is it is it European football? That would be soccer. Oh, yeah. soccer, <laughs> soccer. Yes, <laughs> as we call it here in the in the United States. I, yeah, go ahead. There's not a ton of you know. You look at there's a mix in the studies. You know, there's some pretty good ones that show us stuff, but we get so much anecdotal reports. You know, and, and you got to be right. careful with anecdotes. But you know, we talk to these teams all the time, and you know. I mean, just like our talking about Verlander, the Mets. I mean, there's like, man, some of our pitchers who do just this IPC, they're they're throwing so much better within a couple of days. We're we're measuring, we're seeing that they're throwing better. So, you know, from a looking at it from just through the teams, there are a lot of players that really seem to be benefiting, even just from the IPC application alone. Mm-hmm. What's interesting though is we always hear, I think we always hear with the athletes recovery right so they're they're kind of doing it can they get back to playing a little bit you know at better performance a few days later or for pain you know they're doing this pregame for pain I don't, I don't know if i've really had anyone from olympics to pros to college say they've done it from a performance application like the swimming yeah. ones like the sprint cycle ones you know did they put it on before and they're seeing some sort of enhanced performance that that would be really interesting to try and figure out yeah i mean another another, have y'all had anyone say they've they've yeah well the the rams have done a little bit kind of just like you know very very light sort of exercise stuff prior to like practices and workouts and that kind of thing just almost almost more using it like a warm-up rather than say like hey i'm actually trying to help this person 
perform better. I've, I've heard similar things from some baseball teams. Um, but that, I feel like that's typically kind of how we're, we're hearing it used. Uh, it probably just, again, goes back to the demand of the sport, you know, mm-hmm. with a, if you're doing an intense cycling bout or swimming bout, it's like you do this thing and then you go really intense for kind of a short duration. Yeah. You're trying to really kind of enhance some of those, some of those things that maybe the IPC has a, an ability to manipulate versus like a two hour practice. Two hour. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, it might have to be a four hour game, game or something like that. So I would love to see a reliever doing it right before he comes in. A yeah. And <laughs> just like, dude, he is throwing a hundred. Cause if it's anything like that swimming study, I mean, that's freaking nuts. How much it yeah. improves some of those people's performance, just yeah. doing it yeah. right before their swim. Like, Brad well, Lambert, get on that one. <laughs> yes. Well, and most of what we know about the pre-IPC for performance is an increase in time to exhaustion, right? I mean, that's the most common thing out there. So I think the important piece that Kyle brought up is what are the demands? And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe you could use that pre-throwing like you're saying, Johnny, but, you know, MLB is so constrained on what they'll let their pitchers do from a pitch count standpoint. I wonder if we're really going to see any changes there um but yeah no it'd be be super interesting yeah Yeah. well we're hoping to get more data because we're partners now with the nfl pfaps and so um, we've always worked closely with them but we are an official elite partner um that's up there with like gatorade status they're elite partner as well um and so those guys are going to allow us to to get more information from them um, and sort of test some of these things out. So I think that's going to be cool this next year, trying to steal whatever cool info we can get uh, <laughs> internally with them and then turn it into studies. That's exciting for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was awesome. We, uh, we, we, we rambled on that for yeah. a little while there. It was, yeah. it was, it was good. Um, Zach. How's and Jordan, that's a great name too. Lindbergh, you know, that's, there's a Lindbergh who's published a bunch of BFR papers out there. So yeah. Physiological. Or, I, isn't the, oh, I was thinking of the Hindenburg. That's what I was. No. That's <laughs> no Charles, Lindbergh. Wait, Charles Lindbergh. That's a guy. Oh God. Didn't he do something with air travel there's a Lindbergh in in per Argard's lab all over the place today good god well that was a drunk from the party Kyle no (laughs) no I'm not I didn't have have anything to drink at all yesterday matter of fact very much sober which maybe that's That's the problem oh that's the problem yeah yeah I don't know um that what's going on dude not much just just listening I uh yeah you're doing (laughs) I know, I know you were just dying to kind of jump in there, but we got other stuff in queue well, for you. So, that's, yeah, um, yeah. and you got, I mean, you got to talk Cal Pains and all that other stuff you like to talk yeah. on the IPC podcast. So, well, do you have anything? Zach? You really want to hear Zach's thoughts? Go back to that. That's like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I was going to say, I think potentially tying in like talking about different parameters with the IPC um, and it kind of hints on what Danny Christensen shared in that earlier paper from 2022, where he looked at the mechanistic response with um, glute four transporters and 
part of the one of the other groups in that study was a uh, systemic hypoxia group. And what he actually saw or showed was the group that did the BFR aerobic exercise had a significantly greater glute four translocation to the kind of cell membrane, so to speak. So what he what they speculated from that was it what really wasn't so much due to either pure hypoxia or the contraction mediated responses, metabolites from the muscle. He thought more it was more so from the inflation deflation. Um, and ultimately, it's the same as that study that you mentioned, Johnny, where he showed an increase in glucose uptake out of the thigh. Um, there was basically nine inflations. So he did um, three sets of three bouts of two minutes of exercise. Yeah. And so going back then to this IPC, maybe potentially varying kind of the parameters and whatnot, there might be something to, you know, decreasing the rest time, but having, you know, altering or increasing uh, the number of, of inflation, so to speak. More frequent bouts. Yeah. Yeah. So you get like, and, and what he speculated was it was the sheer stress on, on the mm -hmm. vascular tissue that, that drove that response. Um, and then um, on the, just on the performance side of things, um, there was a systematic review that showed ultimately um, the real big benefit with IPC is on the aerobic or more endurance or aerobic yeah, side of things. And then as you basically transition from um, aerobic exercise to strength or more of that glycolytic type stuff to explosive strength, the, the real benefit just tapers off. So the biggest benefit, say, would be like more so running um, 5Ks, things like that. And then as you do some strength training, there might be a benefit, but it's reduced. And then when you do a jumping or explosive task, um, it just really, there's not really a benefit there whatsoever. Um, and I think it, it, that ultimately goes back to how IPC was discovered and the premise behind that um, with, um, you know, limiting, you know, kind of the progression into the glycolytic substrates to, um, you know, limit the exhaustion of those substrates. But yeah. What, you know, I think on the explosive, I think what's Todd's work at USC from our podcast with him, hopefully that paper is going to come out soon. Heavy, heavy eccentrics on one limb or light BFR on the other limb over six weeks, they both significantly mm -hmm. increase pretty much to almost the same level explosive tasks. So, yeah. so they're, they're single leg explosive jumps as well as strength. So there can be a, something for the strength and explosive side from the BFR. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I meant, um, more so just from IPC. Yeah. Just like, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I want to back up a bit, Zach. Um, because sometimes I think we throw this word out there and I don't think we've ever really talked about what it actually means. So you mentioned sheer stress, mm -hmm. right? And sheer stress would essentially be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how I would define it. Having a high basic, school daughter. <laughs> hey, stress Kylie was awesome day. at the party. Like she was super helpful. That's my young one. You know, yeah, you know, you know, the one that she wasn't was here. <laughs> the other one. Um, but sheer stress is essentially the stress on endothelial tissue or kind of these inner linings of the vascular system. So your artery, your vein. Um, and essentially is how quickly that blood is kind of moving through the vascular system. So things that will increase sheer stress might be heart rate and blood pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. You have that. And then you have like, 
I would say in the context of IPC and, and whatnot, um, just the pure, uh, the reactive hyperemic response. Um, well, that's where you're skipping okay. ahead. So okay. you're skipping ahead. Okay. Right? Okay. So this is where okay. I'm going, right? <laughs> so my point is, at some point, your nervous system decides, holy crap, I'm not getting any kind of shear stress, right? Distal to the cuff or something's different. Maybe I'm hypoxic. Who, who knows what that signaling kind of cascade is, but ultimately the application of that cuff is creating some sort of nervous system, afferent feedback to the central nervous system, distal to the cuff. And that feedback is, yo, dude, something's not right down here, right? And so our nervous system can do a couple of things. You know, maybe there's more, but in my head, there's a couple of things. It could increase blood pressure to try to push past and just, you know, manhandle and force blood into and past that impediment, which is the cuff, um, or it could increase heart rate, right? And so we would kind of need to know how long does it take for that to happen? How long does it take for the nervous system to recognize I'm not getting what I need down here. I'm going to create some vasodilation. I'm going to increase blood pressure. I'm going to increase heart rate. And once we know that number, now we deflate. If it's a shear stress thing, this is kind of where I'm going, right? But we know that number. How long do we have to create full limb occlusion for in order for these things to be manipulated by the nervous system? And then we let it go. And then does that number change over time, right? Like if we do IPC routinely, does it take longer for that to happen kind of distal to the cuff? So I think just kind of from a parameters perspective, it's kind of interesting too, right? So shear stress, I wanted to make sure that we defined it because I don't know that we have. And we know that shear stress really help affects the nitric oxide cascade. It has an effect on, you know, um, the... Uh, pliability of our vascular system and and those sorts of things, things that are pretty important for a a healthy vascular system. So that's kind of where I was going. So, so, so if I didn't hit where you were going, Zach, jump in there, because that's kind of, I just want to make sure we kind of set the stage. Right. We kind of, and then basically you, you get that from the nitric oxide response. I think largely is the the vasodilation effect of when you release that tourniquet or allow blood flow to resume, Mm -hmm. you get a surge of blood flow, yeah. Uh, distal to where the 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 cuff was um, so yeah which small doses of things are good if it's on for a long time you get yeah. this ischemic reperfusion right. and that can cause injury that's right and that is what you see from surgeries or when people are like should i leave this on for an hour <laughs> it's like no because then we're yeah. we're not seeing what we want more is not always yeah. better yeah well, we talked for a very long time. On All right, wrap it up. Good, mm-hmm. good job, fellas. Wrap up. One, one question. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, you get us rolling, Jordan. You never know. But this is kind of why it's fun to do these sort of kind of maybe less structured things and just banter back and forth. So I like it. Uh, Zach, so we kind of, you have probably the most experience sort of in our next um, topic. So we had just kind of keyed this one up for you. Um, Justin Lynn. I think he, oh, not Justin Lin, good grief, Kyle. Hey. Justin Lee. Holy smokes, I can't even read this stupid thing in front of me. Um, I don't remember. I think he emailed this to us. I don't think it was a, an Instagram yeah. deal. Um, he wanted to know, would BFR be appropriate and effective for patients with fibromyalgia? And then he just kind of threw in, or any kind of other widespread pain or 
rheumatic conditions. And, and Zach, you had said you've you've kind of it sounds like maybe more that fibromyalgia population you've got a decent amount of experience with. So and you're working actively kind of working with some some rheumatologists. So talk to us a little bit yeah. about like your your thoughts there. Yeah. So we have in a building that that I work in, we have rheumatologists on the first floor. We have three rheumatologists and they'll refer um, to us for various conditions. Um, and RA is, is extremely common. And then with that, uh, you'll get fibro as well. Uh, so they'll send up those patients. And then we work with just kind of whether it's a chronic pain type of a deal or what have you. Um, I, I would say the the approach that we do is pretty similar as what we would do with our general um, you know, orthopedic patients. And, and what I mean is you just gradually introduce them to the exercise and see where they're at and see what they can tolerate. Um, the progression overall may be slower. Um, what you may end up doing maybe just initially. Um, I think the individual in question is coming off of shoulder surgery. So maybe what you do is you put the, the cuff on them and have them do like the UBE. Um, we don't really have any studies aerobically in, in the upper extremity, but um, we we do it quite often. And I, and I think it's pretty common um, with folks to put it on the UBE or put the cuff on while someone's doing the UBE. Um, and from yeah. there, that just gives them a chance to kind of acclimate to the cuff, see what it's about, um, and then kind of progress from there would be ultimately what we do in a clinic. Um uh, you know, exercise wise, you can run the gamut. Um, I tend to just keep it pretty simple. Um, you know, prone table exercises, sidelining, external rotation, and that's pretty much about it. Um, if they're really limited in what they can do, um, then maybe we just do um, range of motion, act, active range of motion type stuff. Um, again, that's a way for them to kind of acclimate to the cuff. Um, and then ultimately see how they feel during the session, after the session, and then progress as tolerated from there. Yeah. Is there anything that um, you might kind of caution against? Like, I think I would maybe avoid this or that, like just off the top of your head. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, it's a gradual progression because a lot of times folks with fibro are, are reluctant to do things that they're not familiar with or that they've done previously and they have, they have a known painful response to. And so yeah. I don't, I don't try to force it. Um, I'll like introduce it um, and, and say, Hey, what I'd like to try this. This is the reason why I would like to try it. What do you think? Um, and then we can kind of go from there, but I don't necessarily force or really kind of, you know, like get necessarily to failure immediately with those people. Um, sometimes I think you have to meet people where they are, not where I want them to be and, you know, kind of get them to where I need them is, yeah. I, I would say the approach. I, I like that last bit there for sure. I, th I think, I think sometimes what we miss is kind of keeping our eyes on, that prize and where we're going. You know, I think sometimes yeah. we, as clinicians, we, we kind of come at it from the perspective of this is what you have to do. Right. And so we think, okay, they got to start there. They got to start at a 20% load and an 80% pressure and they got to get all 75 reps and they got to get failure. And, and, and that's not really how things go down. You know, it might be what it looks like in a research study, but that's not how you really manage a patient. I don't think that's how any of us have, 
kind of always approach this. I mean, I, I just had in the last 24 hours, two different people kind of reaching out to me just personally, not even asking podcast questions, but it sort of fits with what we're talking about today. And, and one is uh, within the, D- the DOD, they just got some some units over in Guam and, and she was she was wanting to know, well, like just little hacks about how to get started. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, right? I mean, number one, you're going to take the person's limb inclusion pressure. So you're going to get a, a picture right then and there. There's a little snapshot of how is this person just going to handle full occlusion on an arm or full occlusion on a leg? And the reality is most of the time when we're talking about tolerance, we're typically talking about lower extremity. Like, I don't think I've ever had anyone tap out on 40% or 50% pressure yeah. in their upper extremity. Like people do not have a difficult time tolerating that, that level of restriction in an arm customarily. And not to say that they won't, because I, I'm, I, I'm, I very much want to kind of avoid absolutes there, but, um, but, it, but at minimum you get kind of a, a picture with that limb occlusion pressure measurement. Right. And then from there, I mean, one of the things I think I did probably more than anything is I would just underdose the load. I'd find a way that they could do yep. and be able to execute. And I'd be like, all right, let's try this. This is kind of the highest pressure. This is sort of where we want to get you. And then we can just start. And then from there, it made it easy on me because now I'm just trying to progress the load. But but sometimes people don't tolerate that, maybe that high pressure. And then you could always drop yeah. the pressure, right? You yeah. could maybe deflate during the rest period. Although I, I don't think I would really deflate every rest period, but maybe like, you know, after that second or third set, we deflate. And then maybe after the, you know, maybe it's like the latter two sets that we're, we're deflating for. So there's just, maybe you're starting with shortened range of motion or, you know, some kind of just like, like you said, pedaling the arm bike or something that's, people have context for they're like okay this is familiar to me pedaling a bicycle now all we've done is we've kind of added this cuff right and 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 then people go well that was different i've never felt that when i pedaled a bike and so now you've just kind of added a layer to something that they're familiar with so i think you know like you started off saying it's you're not necessarily approaching it any differently than you would a typical orthopedic patient. There's still a human being in front of you. You got to kind of figure out where can I begin with this person and be successful. Right. And, and, and then maybe you might start way away from where you really think you need to get, but that's okay. As long as you're moving towards where you need to be. Right. So we kind of have in our mind that 20%, 30% load, whatever pressure, you know, high level of effort and, you know, can we get, and then can we get our, our 10 sets per week and that sort of thing, you know? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I love about exercise, and I say this a lot in our classes, but I know when a person leaves the clinic, if they did enough to get muscle that day, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you really know exercise, you can answer that question. And I think that's so much of the message that we have when we teach these classes is let's kind of actually manipulate people's physiology. Let's let's actually kind of create some change. And, and we we at least have an idea every time they leave whether or not they did enough, right? Yeah. You know, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's okay if they didn't do enough that day, but you kind of have to know that answer yeah. <laughs> to be able to figure out how to get there, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the things that definitely gets missed. And uh, one of the courses I, I did here recently 
one of the guys goes, man, he goes, you know, the way I feel right now is not how like the trainees feel when they leave the clinic. And it was at a military <laughs> base. And I said, yeah, that's probably like, it's good to know that now, but uh, you know, just like, just putting a tourniquet, a tourniquet on someone is not going to create magic and it's not going to create muscle growth. You, you, you still have to load them. You still have to work with them. What it does is it just reduces the threshold that's required to get the response that we need, but right. th- th- it still requires effort. And sometimes I think like folks miss that point. They're like, well, we're doing BFR. So, you know, I know at the end, like we're just, it's going to, we're going to grow muscle. We're going to get stronger. And you actually, you still have to train it and it, and they should be, somewhat fatigued whenever they leave. Um, yeah, they should feel, yeah, they yeah. should feel like they, they need, they just yeah. worked. Well, for me, typically with these patients, I give them to my interns. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, uh, I, I can attest to that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I still remember those days. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm, I'm right. going over to the ISR. I need you to see this patient. Yeah, <laughs> I got a meeting. Man, I got a meeting. Uh, yeah. No, well, Zach, have you seen the analgesic response with these folks where they, they get done? They're like, man, my pain's better, even like a systemic kind of. Yeah. I think it's somewhat like we've said, like with CRPS where, and I was going to follow that up with the the previous, what I was saying was it is, I don't want it to come across like it's 100%. Everybody tolerates it. You know, we just do it. There's certainly like some people who, who really, they they can tolerate it. They tolerate it well. Um, Whether there's some biopsychosocial aspects to that, where they ultimately look at it and they say like, okay, like, this is really uncomfortable for me to do, but I feel better when I do it. And I feel like I'm on a path or the road to recovery, yeah. so to speak, yeah. versus other folks who you, you you do it. And it's like, dude, you know, we did that last time. Like they just have in their mind, like they don't want to do it, but they're willing to just appease me and try it. And then they come back and they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that ever again. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's the, 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 those folks are, it, it's pretty tricky um, to, you know, to kind of really know that. Yeah. Kyle, you threw out 10 sets. Oh, sorry, Ben, go with yours, but then Kyle hit on what you mean by 10 sets. I don't think we've ever talked about that study or that meta-analysis. Yeah. So Zach's mentioned it a few times, but again, it kind of, we we throw a lot of stuff out there. Um, So there's that, that review paper by Schoenfeld um, and there's others on it. I I forget. It's just the name that I remember always when we talk about it, but, but basically they showed that 10 sets of exercise per week um, was really kind of like an optimal level of prescription for muscle hypertrophy specifically. So um, and, and there's, I mean, there's some data showing could be as few as four, um, but also like the more trained an individual is maybe they need more sets per week, but you know, from my perspective, I just kind of look at it from this perspective of, hey, I'm mostly working with untrained folks in rehab, um, people that are unfamiliar. And if I just have this sort of goal in my mind, again, of where I'm going, this kind of 10 sets per week, now I can figure out just by looking at their program, um, if they've done enough. So for example, if I'm working with a knee, right? And I need their quadriceps specifically to get bigger, to get stronger, which is the most common thing in knee rehab. 
I know if I go and I look at a chart and it says this person's doing long arc quads and they're doing BFR and I can kind of see all those parameters there. And, and who knows, maybe people have actually rated the amount of effort that person's put forth. So I know that they're working hard enough. There's enough fatigue within that, that visit. But if they're only really doing like say that one kind of quad centric exercise and they're in the clinic twice a week, if I break that down from a BFR perspective and I've got 30, 15, 15, 15, I've got four sets of BFR exercise and that person is here twice a week, that only gives me eight sets for the week, right? So I know just from kind of that Schoenfeld perspective of I'm really might not be doing enough for this individual because probably only a couple of those sets are really substantial amounts of fatigue that that mm -hmm. individual's doing. And they're only here twice a week. However, if I go and I just look at a chart and I'm like, all right, well, this person's doing a leg press. It's going to get some quad. It's not isolating the quad. It's going to get some quad. And then they're also doing a long arc quad. And assuming load and effort and all these other things are kind of achieved, I can just kind of look at that and go, all right, well, that's four sets, long arc quad, four sets, leg press. That's eight sets total in one visit. If that person just comes one other time that week, twice a week, that's 16 sets of exercise. And probably eight of those sets, like, you know, or excuse me, four of those sets are, no, I had it right. Eight, eight of those sets for the week are into substantial fatigue, right? Because yeah. probably the last two sets of the leg press um, and the last two sets of the long arc quad, this person is really smoked, right? And so that's four sets really smoked. Visit once, four smoke, four sets, visit two, really smoke. That's eight sets in substantial fatigue. So I look at it from this, this weekly kind of volume perspective, which has been shown is really important for hypertrophy. And I can go, all right, I know this person's doing enough, right? But if I but if I take that initial example that I gave of just a single exercise, if I just add another visit, three visits for the week, that gives me 12 sets. And so I can go, all right, that individual is probably doing enough. They're just kind of barely there, but they're probably doing enough, especially if they're like early on in rehab and the threshold for improvement's pretty low, right? I just know that I'm going to have to add some volume over time to really kind of keep progressing them because the big thing with hypertrophy is weekly volume, if you will. That's mm -hmm. kind of where all of that, where that kind of comes from, the 10 sets per week and, and all that. So. so one of the things that I wanted to bring up here that goes back to what Johnny, you and Zach were talking about was, you know, you guys mentioned pain. And one of the really interesting things that I think comes out of the papers from Luke and Steven is from a pain perspective, it doesn't really look like we need that high of a pressure to have an effect. And so, and this is just for the lower extremity. We don't know the same thing about upper extremity, which is kind of the question we got asked was after shoulder surgery, but just in general, from those two papers, you know, they looked at 40% occlusion and 80% occlusion on the leg and 80% looks like it's better, but 40% occlusion on the leg was still doing something from a pain perspective. And if you're looking at a population that potentially struggles with exercise, has a chronic pain condition, maybe that makes it easier to get the foot in the door to say, okay, well, we can do something really easy. We can start at a low relative pressure and just give them a little bit of stress here. And maybe we create the win by saying, okay, you get a little bit of that analgesic effect 
we're not going to kill you the first go around and you get some buy-in to say, okay, that helped a little bit. It didn't hurt me. It, I felt pretty good after I got done. And then, then we look at what is the optimal prescription for the exercise effect that we want from there. And mm-hmm. so I have to think it's probably similar on the upper extremity. You could probably go conservative, like you're saying, Zach, to begin with, figure out where they live, what they can tolerate, get a little bit of the analgesic effect. You know, you're not shooting for the moon on the first go around and then, you know, work your way up from there. So I think that could be a really interesting part of what we see with BFR in those populations. I want to I want to add a little bit of nuance to what Ben said, because I think that's a really good point, Ben. Um However, I, I would potentially caution against sort of telling a patient, hey, this is going to help your pain or hey, this might help your pain. I, I think it's a, a lot better approach to have that happen and the patient be interested in that. In the back of your head, the clinician, you're thinking, all right, I'm doing this because I might be able to achieve these effects. But if you tell a patient all of that and then it doesn't happen because mm-hmm. um, it might not, then you, you're, you've kind of put yourself in a bad spot of making that, of, of, of missing on a lot of things that you could manipulate. Like for example, the placebo effect, um, you, you're going to miss on that, you know, because they have an expectation now that uh, this is going to make my pain better. Right. And what their pain being better uh, might mean to them just kind of initially could be different than what they might experience. You know, they might actually experience uh, some sort of pain relief, but it might, might not be exactly how they, the individual would sort of define that too. So I think there's some layers to that. You have to kind of, kind of think about when you're prescribing these things and, and what you're actually sort of telling the, the individual. So I just kind of wanted to layer that in a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't think you want to tell your patient that you're going to give them relief as a, a target on the front yeah. end. Dude, I love setting up my placebos. I'm like, <laughs> you're going to have pain well, relief. It, you're going to get stronger. Works, your you growth know? hormones yeah. going to shoot through the And then roof. you pass them you're off the center. Me. Johnny, you already yeah. told us what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you say it's Vince's fault. Yeah. I say, what did he do wrong? Exactly. Oh my yep. God. Well, yeah, I, I think Johnny, you brought up a great point. You, you definitely have to throw growth hormone into that conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always it's, this delicate nuance of working with folks because because I agree, Johnny, you do. It, it's good to kind of manipulate that a little bit if you if you can, you know. But mm-hmm. it's kind of a slippery slope, you know. If you don't get it, then. Yeah, for what sure. you do from there kind of thing, yeah. It, it Just show the them. King. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> show them the liver king. And oh, yeah, it's work out. Yeah. Uh, Stay boy, primal. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good grief. Um, good stuff, gents. Uh, we, got a, we got a few more uh, questions here. So we might try to keep these answers a little bit shorter because otherwise this podcast is going to end up yeah, I've already had to go hours, pee once. Three hours. Then I guess Johnny's checked out. He left the chat and came back to the chat. <laughs> All while Zach was talking, I think. So I made sure to mute awesome. the microphone while I was peeing. You <laughs> did. You did, did awesome. Uh, we had a cameo appearance by Kylie while you were in the bathroom. We'll, we'll put in there later. Um, so 
And just that was that was from Justin Lee. Thanks, Justin. We'll we'll send you a T-shirt, my man. Um, we'll get, we'll get with you on that. But had a uh, an Instagram question from I guess it's from Jackson Cole. You never know, like if this is someone's actual name that's on Instagram. But it's a cool Jackson name. Cole thirty four. Yeah, he kind of sounds like a like a baseball player. I think a Jackson Cole sounds like a baseball name. I think or that's a quarterback Garrett, could be Garrett a quarterback. Cole. You're thinking of Garrett Cole, I think. No, I'm definitely not thinking of that. Or Jackson Hole. There's not. There's not anything. That's that's like, uh, Garrett Cole hashtag sticky stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, Jackson Cole thirty four on Instagram wanted to know: Are there any recent developments in the literature regarding BFR and its effects or mechanisms on bone? Then, and then let me hang on. And then I tell you what, let me just piggyback two questions yeah. here because the next question is a, is a bone question as well. It comes from Jay Zotto 11, which I think is James Zotto. He's, he, he took our class a while back. I'm familiar with that name. He asked, what are the best practices for programming BFR in soldiers with bone stress injuries? I, I would just kind of shrink that down and say just programming in bone stress injuries. But I think he actually kind of works with some 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 war fighters. So, so Ben, why don't you tackle our effects on anything recently on bone, mechanisms on bone, using for bone stress injuries. Tell us all about bone. All right. Um, as far as recent developments, I, I don't think we've, you know, had anything in the literature that's really changed any understanding or interpretation. I mean, the Methodist ACL paper that we've discussed multiple times uh, previously is kind of the the newest and potentially the best evidence we have of any direct effects on bone and, you know, kind of came about as a, a secondary target in the study when they were looking at their DEXA scans. Um, yeah, so they didn't look at mechanisms or anything. No, no, so they no, they didn't mechanisms. provide us any explanation in terms of mechanisms, but they did show it did something to bone at least, which is cool. Yeah, it was, you know, it didn't make, it wasn't a study of did bone heal faster. It wasn't a study of did it increase bone mineral density. It, it really just showed that there was some preservation of bone mineral density compared to a control group where they had some some loss of bone mineral density. So that's still a win for us. And, and you know, obviously we could take that and say it, it looks like it's having some positive effects in comparison to the alternative, which would be, you know, decrease in stress or unloading and having that decrease in bone mineral density happen. Uh, but yeah, nothing in that study that looked at mechanisms. And so uh, I know, and we discussed this in the course and kind of go into the thoughts that are there and how it might be affecting bone, but it, it really is mainly from some of the animal literature and, you know, from physiology pathways looking at, is there, you know, something from a hormonal standpoint, either from, um, you know, growth hormone or VEGF that's translating over to an effect on the bone? Um, is there you know, something from a fluid pressure standpoint that we get? And animal literature would suggest that there might be just from having this inflate deflate happen. And, you know, then we also look at this, you know, crosstalk between muscle and bone and it looks like there, you know, has to be some stress on, on muscle and some resulting stress on bone in some context from a mechanical tension standpoint to have a good effect on bone. Uh, and then also um, from some of the, the potential myokine responses we get from muscle when there's some stress, you know, maybe we're seeing something with something like myostatin translating over to an effect on the bone if you reduce myostatin. So 
a lot of potentials and still a lot of questions as to what is the effect, how much of an effect, what does the dose need to be? Um, and so a lot, a lot left to be understood here, but I think there, there's still a lot of potential. Probably better to use BFR than to just do a low load from what we think is is there as of right now. Yeah, and so backing up a little bit, just on like the Methodist study specifically, they they basically showed that their control group, uh, well, both groups really were losing bone mass. So they saw bone mass and bone density. They got mm -hmm. both of those correct. Mm -hmm. So they saw bone mass and uh, so they got whole bone. They're getting whole bone mass. And then they're getting kind of like localized density measurements, correct? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how that that data breaks down. And they showed in the involved limb in an ACL population that for the first six weeks, those those two items were reducing. They were going down, right? And then they began BFR at what, like... They they said around a week, you know, yeah, day seven or pretty so. early, you yeah. know, pretty early. They began BFR, and their BFR group actually seemed to kind of help restore some of what they had lost. Um, and it was significant, I believe, that that improvement from you know it had dropped for the first six weeks, and then it increased. And I think that change from what they lost to what they regained was significant um within that specific group a within group change but then the control group that involved them it really continued to lose bone mass and bone density lost quite a lot more over the next six weeks so at week 12 that control group had really lost bone mass bone density and your bfr group had regained some of what they had lost. Yeah, it, I don't know if they said that the six week mark was a statistically significant yeah. change from That's baseline. Why there was a question to, mark. In yeah, there when I, I said that. I it sure looked like it from the data that was presented, but I don't know that it really was. So the initial loss was like six percent. Yeah, I think. And then Zach, Johnny, anything to add on that on that little kind of detail there? Yeah, I don't recall. Yeah, well, not on that paper, but I was going to say that one of the things that I always kind of talk about with bone with folks is ultimately, you know, everyone's like really familiar with Wolf's Law, but when mm -hmm. they think about and apply Wolf's Law, they almost exclusively consider Wolf's Law as external ground reaction forces, and, and they negate the effect that a muscle contraction is going to have on bone, mm -hmm. and muscle contraction has a huge effect on bone, um, and you know, the other thing of it is too, is when we talk about loading the bone, it, it, it's really, it's short dynamic bouts and that's where the muscle contraction comes in. Um, so, um, th there's, there's definitely something to be said uh, about, um, using BFR because, um, a lot of times a, a muscle contraction that would be sufficient enough to kind of create some substantial tension on the bone, uh, is not going to be done with low loads and it's not going to be tolerated, um, if someone has an acute stress injury, stress reaction, fracture, things along those lines. Um, and so if BFR can basically stimulate that response, I mean, I think that's kind of uh, would, would be a good thing in an application in, in a clinical sense. Yeah, the muscle contraction and the hypoxia, I think, are both mm -hmm. two key components. And 
I mean, essentially, we just keep getting these mechanistic <laughs> studies that show there's potential there. I mean, I was trying to mm -hmm. pull them up because I we had one just come out. The Brazilians did it that, you know, if you did BFR, unfortunately, they used systolic blood pressure, but 70% versus 130%, they were looking specifically at parathyroid hormone, which is a regulator of calcium uptake. Um, the higher pressure had significantly higher levels of parathyroid hormone than the more moderate pressure in resistance exercises alone. And, you know, you go back to the carabolic stuff, bone specific alkaline phosphate okay. goes up almost mm -hmm. the same as lifting heavy. There's the water one that came out. Uh, was just, what's the guy's name? Zarovar this year, just not too long ago, doing water exercises in osteoporotic women versus water exercise with BFR. The BFR group had significantly higher IGF-1 and also significantly higher T-scores. Bone mineral density was, was better in these elderly women. So I think we're just getting more and more and more. The mechanisms are all like pointing that direction. Like, okay, mm -hmm. it seems that everything you would want to see keeps going up. Now we just need the studies, you know? So yeah. now I think we can include that water one um, as another bone study. It was osteoporotic women. We got Lambert's a clinical one. Uh, hopefully the NASA folks are going to start showing us some things if, if they start really looking at it. And then I think Sherry's work in equine, you know, they're really going to be looking at bone as well. And they're going to get a deep, deep look because they can really get into, into that limb and, and look at it. So Potentials there, the mechanisms are there. And I always said, even if it doesn't help bone, at least you're getting the muscle strong yep. while exactly. you're dealing with the bone. And then a strong muscle is always going to assist bone. The muscle yep. bone crosstalk is huge. Those myokines are play a huge role. Yeah. Well, and that's what I tend to rely on, Johnny, at this point is since we don't have the information on does bone heal faster, and I don't know that we'll really have that in a well-controlled way in humans, it's like, well, even yeah. if the muscle or even if the bone doesn't heal faster, we still have a muscle problem. And, and yeah. this could could really help with that. Well, and the stress fracture protocols suck, you know. So like you saw them at our base, Ben. It's like, cool, you want to do the alter G or aquatics? And that, that was kind <laughs> of it, you know, and we couldn't really do yeah. anything because if we go to Frank fracture because we're pushing too hard, they're they're boarded out of the military. Um, yeah. so it's like, okay, the slow graded approach, and it's like shit if I can use hypoxia and get the muscle strong at the same time. And, you know, after that six weeks or so they get cleared and they're, they're good to go at six weeks. Cause the alternative is you wait for the bone to clear and then you go after the strengthening and start really pushing the load. And then you're, you're just doubling your rehab time. So I think in those populations, especially this military population, I think we shorten the window, which is bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And so if I thought if we're we going to do a quick to... answer. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. work. Yeah, um, not with four people jumping in, on, <laughs> contributing on everything. That's not going to happen. So, I, I, but I did want to kind of talk maybe a little bit about um, James's like the because he, he he's kind of talking about like this your soldiers and those sorts of things. So presumably you have some some folks that are in the military that are um, could have a few different scenarios. Maybe there's been this big spike in their activity because they just joined and they're in basic or something like that. Or yep. these could be people that um, have been in the, in the DOD, in the military for a while. And, and they've been kind of running and over time seeing these bone stress injuries. But I think the, the probably the big mistake there is, well, if you have a bone stress injury, it's not like, like it's an actual fracture. So you sh shouldn't be like totally removing load. Um, if you're incorporating BFR, these people should still be loading. Yeah. Um, and from a, from a bone perspective that might involve impact, 
Like if we're really trying to dose exercise, like Zach was saying, some of these quicker muscle contractions and just literally the impact um, could be an important thing to kind of stimulate bone. I think, you know, I, I, of course, this is a good time to talk Keith Barr a little bit. You know, he's shown maybe just these short durations of activity six minutes, baby. Six to minutes. kind of have an effect. So, you know, yeah. I think you, you probably should be looking at managing a bone stress, in, bone stress injury from maybe a different angle than you might really kind of think about some other injuries. BFR certainly should kind of be incorporated there. It makes sense to address deficits in muscle size, muscle strength, um, areas where you cannot load, but um, you should still kind of have this sort of focus on, all right, I need to get load into this limb um, probably as quick as I can. And um, maybe yeah, it's the paradox, short, you know, you box. get a, you get a broken bone or you get a bone problem. And the thinking is let's take everything away. Let's not yeah. load, let's not do anything. And, and bone needs stress. And so um, the problem in the military is you get diagnosed with one of these and you get put on a profile and it's got specific things you can and cannot do. So you have to, you can't go outside those parameters of the profile lots of times. Um, so you're limited to, they can only do low load activity. Anytime you see low load activity, it's like, well, hell yeah, I got a tourniquet yeah. that I'll put on with that. Even if it's like on a bike, um, that, that's an easy thing to go after. And, and we're pushing the envelope with bone in the military. I mean, we've got the, yeah. it's called glide. It's the alter G study where if you got a fracture, a true fracture, we, we're going to walk you right immediately. No, no non-weight bearing, um, unless it's intra-articular, it's get into the alter G and we're going to weight bear and we're going to let symptoms be the guide. And yeah. we were already doing that protocol. So it's like, if you get out and it's like, my tibia is killing me and it's, it looks swollen. Oh, we pushed it too hard. Sorry. You can back off. Um, but we're, we're using a graded approach to treat, to treat bone, almost like muscle that it, it needs a stress and it will have a response. So that's a funded trial through metric right now. Sweet. I think I think from a from a resource perspective, one of the folks that I that I love um, on like the bone side of things, bone injury side of things, prescribing exercise is Rich Willie. Um, he's got an Instagram, Montana Running Lab, I think is what it is, um, or something like that. But um, he's definitely kind of an authority in that space, and he's has posted some super simple infographics and things in terms of like, you know. Um, exercise dosage and whatnot too. So, so that's, that's, uh, that would be a, a rabbit hole that I would go down if I was kind of managing um, those folks yeah. routinely. So another fun yeah. name. Yeah. Rich Willie just seems fun to say. Yeah. That. Yeah. It does seem fun to say. Uh, cool. So, all right. Um, another podcast question from Whitney seven, 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 seven on Instagram. That's a lot of sevens. Yeah, it's a lot. Seven, seven, oh, seven, six was taken. And I actually don't even know if it's Whitney. It might actually be Whiny. Um, now that I read that again, I, I, I just sort of assumed it was Whitney, but it might be Whiny sevens. Whiny sevens. I don't know what that means, but um, this individual is in PTA school. Uh, and I, for some reason, I thought it was a... A female, but I actually don't know that because I was thinking Whitney, but it says whiny, so it could be the questions you know, are taking so long because Kyle I don't can't even stop. Know. <laughs> I can't read them. 
Jesus. Can't, literally can't clearly get to can't the question. Them. Oh, my <laughs> word. So bad. They're never letting me take over the podcast again. Yeah. Um, it's been nice knowing y'all. <laughs> uh, this person wanted to know about ankle sprains and wanted more info on ankle sprains. I'm assuming um, how to use BFR after an ankle sprain. Uh, I, any published data that you guys are familiar with, Johnny or Zach? You got? I don't. I'm not familiar with anything that's published. Only not acute. Only the no. chronic, and it was uh, yeah. specifically yeah. at um, the peroneals. Oh, yeah. peroneals. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Acute, I mean, acutely wise, man. My my go to is um a closed chain mini squats uh single leg and um heel raises uh preferably yeah. single leg if they can do it um i i um i had a pretty bad ankle sprain um basically 72 hours or so before i went to montana um back in 2020 um i mean this thing i had pitting edema um could barely walk it was on a Wednesday night and then, uh, I did BFR that night. And then, uh, the next day and by Friday, I legit could do, I could do a, a single leg broad jump. I could do single leg vertical jumps and then went and walked in the mountains for roughly 60 miles over the next week. And I was completely fine. I had bruising the whole nine yards, but I really had no pain whatsoever. I have used that same kind of protocol or same approach with a lot of acute ankle um, issues and acutely with people coming out of boots, um, and have had really good results. Um, so that is kind of my go-to with acute yeah. ankle sprain. So use it, use it, use it early, use yep. it to get people moving and yep. getting some sort of intense exercise off of that. I think I remember years back, the Loyola Marymount folks had told me they liked getting it on just even just getting the cuff on inflate deflate, you know, immediately after kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think we all um, have said it a million times, but worth saying it again, if you can add movement, if you can add activity, then, then you should really add that. So, um, but from a pain perspective really seems to, you know, anecdotally have some value um, and certainly with an ankle sprain, plantar flexion strength is typically the thing that people have, kind of that hardest time getting back, getting back some of that range of motion. So Zach got both of those by adding a single leg heel raise and then also adding a kind of a closed kinetic chain sort of um, squat type movement. He's going to get some dorsiflexion into in, in, in that. So kind of hitting both of those targets it, that you're just going to have a hard time with, with an ankle sprain and adding BFR to it. So, yeah. I did I like a review it. paper with a, uh with John Faltus and Corbin Hett on chronic ankle instability. And basically yeah. it, it was John's protocol. He'd had some pretty good success with chronic ankles in the NBA. So we went over theory and his whole protocols on there and some really sexy pictures, et cetera. So we can, we can throw that one on the podcast notes if you want. Yeah. If you want to see what they were doing in the NBA with this. We will, we will add it to the podcast notes. Mm-hmm. Just to cite me if you publish, that's my main goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one would ever not cite you, would they, Johnny? Thank you. I cite myself. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny's favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> Self citation. Um, 
All right, so then uh, Whiny Sevens also asked, um, what about using BFR on the leg to with something like maybe a clamshell to get the glutes? What do you guys how does want to know how does that work? It's the million dollar question. I don't think we need to go down the road of um, how does this work above the cuff. If you want to know that, come take our class. Um, I think we've actually done a podcast on how does it work above the cuff. There's a lot of different theories. Uh, let's go specifically to the question of glued exercise clamshell. What do you guys? What do you guys think, Ben? Why don't you Why don't you handle that one? Good exercise, clamshell, BFR. Is that going to work? I mean, it, it does something. If, if you have a chance to try it, and I always tell people when they ask, you know, about the proximal stuff, just try it. Let me know how it feels. It seems to be more fatiguing than without BFR, even though you're targeting a muscle that's proximal to the application of the tourniquet. Um, sometimes I think that the clamshell just may not be a long enough lever with BFR to really get the stress that we want. But um, I, I think that if if all you have available is to do clamshells to create some stress for the glute, um, then adding a tourniquet to that exercise is probably better than the exercise alone. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I don't, I don't know that I would choose a clamshell exercise as my primary, my absolute best choice for increasing muscle size, muscle strength of the glute max. But if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. But I think, you know, if you need those things, then probably need to be progressing towards like a squat kind of movement, some sort of hip extension component. Mm -hmm. um, as Was well. a question so, for glute max with a clamshell? It just says glute exercise. So, I mean, you have, you're you doing clamshells with glute max, yeah. you're missing the whole story there. Yeah. 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 I, th I, I don't, I don't think that's where I would, would go yeah. straight away. Um, Listen to the proximal ones. There's podcasts out there. Yeah. We've got a yeah. few, we've got a few different ones on, on proximal. So um, lots of, lots of stuff in terms of theory and whatnot to available. And so then uh, last question from whiny sevens. Um, Jeez, whiny sevens. I, swear, <laughs> I swore it was Whitney, but it's whiny. I don't even or maybe, maybe I copied it wrong. Maybe you just wrote, wrote it down. Yes. It's yeah. very possible, but I think I'm pretty sure I copied and pasted. So anyway, um, <laughs> can you use BFR for a multi-muscle exercise and have one on your leg and one on your arm at the same time? So I, this is tough because, I mean, I think multi-muscle exercise, I think of like a, like a compound movement, like a squat or a bench yeah. press or something like that. I'm not typically thinking an exercise where you move one arm and one leg at the same time. I'm going to kind of piggyback that question into our kind of our final question here, and then we'll, we'll tidy some things up. But our, our last question comes from Mark link underscore PT on Instagram. Um, this person was curious about the results of using four cuffs versus one cuff when doing, say, for example, a leg exercise. Um, <laughs> Zach, what do you, what kind of thoughts do you have here, man? Uh, yeah, so, so kind of, I guess maybe the question ultimately is like, you know, it's kind of a systemic question, maybe, uh, it yeah. cloaked in 
adding cuffs in a lot of different regions and lots of muscles working at once. What yeah. do you think? I, I don't know. I can't think of an exercise that comes to mind where my, where I would do a low load repetitive type exercise where I'm incorporating the legs and arms at the same time. It, to me, that's going to be more of an explosive type movement, like a, I don't know, like a cleaning press or that type of a mm-hmm. deal where it's not going to necessarily be, um, you know, I'm not cleaning and pressing 75 times trying to get this metabolite response. Um, so um, what I would typically say, and, and, I, and this falls into what I tell people that think that they want to uh, do some supersets during the rest period, um, just to kind of get that in, um, you know, BFR, we're, we're talking about getting the exercise done in roughly six to seven minutes. I, I would say just give that muscle group that you want to kind of target from an accessory type standpoint with a superset or, um, you know, if you're trying to do, I don't know, like a leg and an arm, just do one of those at a time and then kind of go from there. Um, cause the, the one that you're trying to do during the rest period or the one that's like the kind of accessory, not main component of the lift, it's, it's not going to get its fair due, so to speak. Um, so just do that separately. Um, and then when it comes to four cuffs, uh, no, I, I don't, um, I, I've, I've never done that, um, before, uh, I would say, you know, again, it goes back to what I said previously. I'm not going to really do an exercise where I'm targeting all four limbs at the same time. And then, you know, potentially you could say, you know, from a safety standpoint, you know, is, is this even a good idea? You have the Takana study from 2005 who did bilateral knee extensions and they showed roughly a 10% reduction um, in stroke volume. And so that was just in the legs. And then, so what happens now, if we're fully including the venous return out of the arms as well, what exactly, what, yeah, exactly. That's a lot of load on the vascular system. And so what are we, you know, trying to accomplish? And again, should we just give either the lower extremities or, and, or the upper extremities, their own exercise to kind of, um, train. We hear people do this all the time. We hear people teach it, you know, Um, and typically they're using a a crappy cuff that is probably barely getting any occlusion at all. Because if if you're doing it right, you ain't going to be able to do that. That's right. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be significantly it's going to be really uncomfortable, um, especially in the lower extremities, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think you did a good job, Zach, of, of coming around at this question of, you know, it's really, it's an exercise question of what are we trying to achieve? What is our goal? You know, if you're doing something that is more of the total body or incorporates the legs and the arms at the same time, maybe, you know, the exercise there is not where we're really doing what we tend to think of with BFR. You know, it, it's probably just not not our best target there. And then it definitely does bring up the the device question of what kind of occlusion are we applying if we are looking at applying BFR with the exercise. And if you're getting any kind of significant occlusion from the device that you're using, you're probably not going to be looking at applying it to all four limbs at the same time. But we, yeah, we don't really have any, anyone that's looked at that from what I understand. And maybe that's, you know, 
part of what guides our decision making on is it a, a good idea for us to go after all four limbs or stick to you know one or two at a time. Yeah, so, no. yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> nothing, nothing to add there. Zero evidence. Um, probably, probably not cuff, probably not doing much at all. If you can do all four, I, I agree with all that. So um, I, I would just say one other thing that just to kind of end that all is even though we have the ability to do bilateral exercises in the clinic, I pretty much always do unilateral exercises. I may train yeah. the other limb but I think when, when you have this discussion, you need to, or you consider this, you have to factor in that the involved limb is going to be trained at a significantly different load than what the uninvolved side is. So I very rarely even do bilateral at the same time. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah totally, totally agree, Zach. I mean, from a rehab perspective, which is kind of the angle we generally take, it's, you know, I'm extremely uncommon for me to do a bilateral exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I see people doing squats with unilateral BFR all the time on Instagram. And I'm, I just kind of go, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, like yeah. I, I know what's going to happen when you start getting tired. Yeah. You see it. You know? It's a big and, um, shift. It's a big shift, you know? And, 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 and even that, like, even if you were just doing a lunge with BFR on one leg, your, your quads going to get tired which means you're going to maintain a more vertical tibia. You're going to hinge more at the hip. You're going to change how you're moving just with an exercise when you're not like locked into a particular type of movement. And in rehab, a lot of times we really need to force people to move a certain way. And the only way you can do that sometimes is um, really kind of constraining the environment, which a machine helps you do a lot, you know, um, there's other ways to do it, but definitely kind of being in uh, a specific machine really, really sort of helps you do that. So anyhow, yeah, um, that's good stuff. So done, kind of done with questions here, but some things that we have, some other things we wanted to talk about. Um, the biggest one being the New York thing. So um, many of you that follow us um, in our little Instagram, or excuse me, in our Facebook inside circle, um, a little private group that we have there. We were really trying to keep y'all informed and then as much as we could kind of on the rest of our channels as well. Um, something that happened um, timeframe wise, I think it was the summer. It might've been like May or somewhere in there. Um, the uh, One of our, our buddies, Nick Rolnick, um, basically applied to get some CEU approval in New York for a new class he was putting together on BFR and it got denied and it was it got denied CEU approval. The reason it was denied was that um, an individual within the government structure in New York that oversees the practice of PT said that um, they didn't think BFR was within scope for physical therapists. That kicked off a whole cascade of events um, that kind of swept across New York. Um, we were helping Nick as much as we could with uh, info kind of from our end and doing our kind of own research. I went down the wormhole of learning how the practice of physical therapy is governed in the state of New York. And it's, to be quite frank, it's a shit show. 
Um, the way govern or way PT is governed in New York is an absolute disaster. And if you're a PT in New York, you need to be, my opinion, paying attention to Nick, paying attention to a guy named Brian Goonan and anybody else that they start kind of tagging into things because you guys honestly need to take back some control of how PT is governed in New York. Essentially, um, you have a board in New York that is an advisory board. They have zero power whatsoever. They can make recommendations to the secretary that is within the educational system in uh, New York. That individual is appointed. Presently, it is a retired attorney who has no background in physical therapy whatsoever. Um, her, her job, we don't really even know, but apparently she has unilateral decision-making power for what is within scope of practice for physical therapists, as well as I, best I can tell uh, other professions as well, because she is the secretary for not only the board of physical therapy um, or, or, or the profession of physical therapy, excuse me, but she's secretary for a number of other professions as well. And so I think physical therapists should govern physical therapists. Um, I think that's how it works in Texas. I know it's how it works in California. I don't know how it works in Georgia. Is that how it works in Georgia's act? Physical yeah. therapists govern physical therapists. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like we have an executive officer in, in California, but, but we have like actual board meetings where our board meets and they schedule them and they, they keep minutes and they have agendas and all these things. New York has none of that. Um, so at any rate, what happened was Nick applied for this approval through the APTA in New York and the APTA, someone at the APTA essentially sent this question off to this individual, this secretary, um, and that secretary wrote an opinion. Um, it's very lawyery if you read it and you kind of understand the context. And so basically the APTA said, all right, well, we, apparently we can't approve this kind of thing. Um, very long story short, now that I've kind of given you the layout, the lay of the land in New York in terms of how PT is governed, um, we were able to, along with Nick and some others, submit um, answers to a number of questions that were posed. Some of those questions were quite clearly not from a physical therapist because um, they had no idea um, like the role of a physical therapist and what assistive versus restrictive means or anything like that. So, so there's that angle. Um, and, but we were ultimately able to get a, a ruling that said physical therapists may use BFR in practice. So, um, did I miss anything on the New York thing there, guys? I, 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 it's a pretty annoying whole process and very disappointing, quite honestly, to see. Um, it was a cluster. How it took how too it long. It's it reversed. Long. So, yeah. Thank God. Um, it's good. It's happened yeah. twice. North Carolina had it, but it was a blip. It, I mean, yeah. within a, a very short amount of time, they were able to see, okay, yeah, we're going to reverse this. Yeah. The key points I think that came out of both rulings, as they said, understand your personal scope of practice. If you're going to yeah. do this, make it's sure that, that well, you're better at it. You, you work the whole <laughs> thing. Okay. I can do that. I'll, we'll go back to that. Go ahead. Keep going. I didn't want to. Well, no, there's, you've got the professional scope, which is basically what our profession, you know, says kind of that, that we can do. Um, you have the, what's the middle one, the, the legal. You have essentially kind of like your jurisdictional. Jurisdictional. So, so what does your state. state law say? 
And then you've got your personal. And so your personal is basically if, if something happened and you got taken to court for what you did, how would you justify that you, what you were doing to that patient, you knew how to do it. So have you done anything to check the boxes and say, I, I know how to use a tourniquet or I've taken an advanced course in BFR because we're not taught this stuff in school. Um, and so you have to check this personal scope of practice. So both North Carolina and New York. Which means you got to prove it. Prove it. You, yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't just say, oh, I read some papers, right? Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be able to substantiate why this intervention that you performed on a patient that came to you and trusted you to do no harm. How can you prove that you have a, a the, the requisite skills and knowledge to perform this intervention on yeah. something that you weren't taught in school. Yeah. So yeah. both of the rulings, yes, it's fine to do, but you, you have to check your personal scope of practice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. just to give Nick a hard time, because I, I think that's a great yeah. thing to do here. Um, sure. Nick, we might have talk about how you do your applications for the state of New York. Cause I just applied for next year for New York yeah. and we got an approval back within a week. So we've been approved there for years. So <laughs> Come on, man. Tell not to, wrong, not man. to do not apply in any other states, Royal Nick. Um, <laughs> we've been able to do it with no problem at all. Yeah. <laughs> Hysterically, he's gonna love that. Yeah, well, anyways, it's good to go. Nice summer, good to go. Well, so, all yeah. right, yeah, thank we're thank, back. Thank, thank goodness, man. Um, I kind of a teaser so. In the new year, I think hopefully one of the first podcasts we're going to do is something that we actually really intended to do this year and just kind of got rolling. But we want to bring on the authors of the clinical practice guideline for the management of venous thromboembolus for physical therapists. So there is a, uh, a new kind of an update to that that um, Dr. Ellen Hillegas and Two other individuals um, that I just am t- having a having a terrible time remembering their names um, contributed to, and so we we're gonna we've we, Johnny and I had the opportunity to kind of chat with them sort of at the beginning of the year. I think that was like March that we did that, and that was kind of you know the genesis of that was they had a talk at CSM, and actually uh, our buddy Jimmy McKay for PT Pinecast had them on his podcast. And that was, that was really great. And so, you know, probably from a safety perspective, even still to this day, I think the biggest question that we get is whether or not BFR might form a venous thromboembolus or might kind of negatively impact the venous thromboembolus. So we figure why not get the absolute experts on to talk about that. And so just wanted to kind of tease that for you. Um, we, I helped with ACL study day recently. So we did a, a kind of a BFR specific ACL study day, which you can, I think if you just Google ACL study day, you'll, you'll find the website. Um, but that, that brought on, uh, we put, put together an agenda of Chris Fry, who has done a ton of BFR work. We had Luke Hughes on there. We had, Corbin Het, who we've mentioned a few times now, he from Methodist Houston, who's part of that ACL study that they did at Methodist. And then we had uh, my friend, our friend, Heather Milligan from Elite Orthosport out in Los Angeles. 
had all of them kind of come on and tackle different topics around BFR and using it in the rehabilitation after ACL reconstruction. I, I think we might actually do an, another one potentially in 2023. Matt uh, Matt Bobman, who runs that, does a fantastic job. We've we've supported that ACL study day from its genesis way back when we had a an actual meeting out in, in L.A., and that was at UCLA. We had about 100 folks out there. It was fantastic. And, and I think Matt's going to maybe consider tackling some uh, some in-person stuff in the in the future. So just kind of keep your eyes on that space. He, he does a lot of good work, brings a lot of fun people on. One of the things that I took away from that that uh, I wanted to tell you guys, I think I told Johnny, but I didn't tell the rest of y'all. Um, Dr. Fry, when he was talking about their sham protocol, they basically have a Delphi unit that's um, – uh, programmed in a way that it's providing a very minimal restriction pressure, but essentially the screen says it's providing 80% pressure. So oh, really? they really have that's this cool. cool ass sham. So, right. I mean, cause that's part of the really huge problem with BFR research is the inability to sham BFR. Like how do you make people think they're getting BFR when in fact they're not? And so yeah, the yeah. neat thing about the Delphi is like, well, you got the screen and it's showing this pressure adjustment and it's doing all of these different how, things. How did he do that? He got Delphi to do I that? don't know. <laughs> it's hmm. um, it, uh, He said it and I went, that is absolute genius. And I kind of cool. told him on sidebar, I'm like, hey man, that is, that's cool. I think that's really going to kind of reshape sort of the sham side of things within yeah. the, the BFR research space. And he was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's kind of what we were hoping. So, so yeah, I, I think like in our really protocols. Neat. We we basically say we turn the machine around so they can't see it. <laughs> yeah, we inflate it to twenty, and we turn yeah. it. as the cuff is sliding off somebody's leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. twenty twenty it kind of holds on. So. But, so I thought just from like a re, just kind of like hey, here's where things are going in the literature. Like that's pretty slick to yeah. have. Um, a, I mean that's a that's obviously not a perfect sham, but that's about yeah. as legit as I think you could get in terms of of a sham protocol. So. So that was pretty yeah. neat. Um, wanted to kind of tease Johnny recently did a an event at Sacred Heart University. We did that in conjunction with PT Pintcast. So Jimmy came out. Y'all had like kind of a big panel interview, live podcast kind of deal, right, Johnny? And yeah, a little happy good. hour after. And, yeah, yeah, they rented a bar out on campus. It was all good. Ooh, My kind ooh. of. My kind of podcast event it was good. <laughs> Go to PT Pinecast. I think he's got that on there. Yeah, PT Pinecast. And so we look to probably do some more of those events. So um, kind of around the country, maybe at PT schools and various things. So reach out if you'd be interested in hosting us. Um, pay attention if you'd like to kind of attend and just sort of, you know, any, any opportunity to kind of come here, people that are, experts quote-unquote experts in a certain area of, of work but also just kind of hear new voices i think it's always it's always a lot of fun um speaking of new voices and and bfr stuff we got csm coming up in february johnny's got two different talks right one yeah. on the last freaking then... day of csm thanks a lot APCA. <laughs> they said they they saved the best for last to try and keep people from flying out they told I, I was, actually that's what they yeah. told me so yeah <laughs> but uh 
we got the shoulder one with Jeremiah from the Astros and Corbin. So we're going to be talking about BFR yeah. for the shoulder and the throwing from, from what team? What team are they from? Johnny? Stros, baby. Stros. We're going to show how the, you win World Series. 2022 <laughs> World Series mm-hmm. champion Houston Astros. Is that who? They're? Yep. And then <laughs> I've got one with Kaylin and his group um in the cardiopulmonary Great. section which right is going to be pretty cool yeah what is that what is that one what are y'all talking about uh we were talking about it with for lung and potentially with long covid that's right that's yeah. right and we have a paper coming out looking at bfr's use with some preliminary yeah. work with lung transplants and kaylin's about to get some units in the icu down there in the hospital to get some pilot data right before that's incredible yeah, that's, that's very, awesome that's really cool yeah. And I'm just going to sit there and not understand what the hell they're talking about. Also wanted to just kind of say there's a bunch of um, posters on BFR this year. Of course, we had a ton of uh, conversations last year, especially around like neurologic populations, that sort of thing. So um, if you're going to be there in San Diego, I I feel like CSM is going to be a lot of fun this year. Um, Johnny and Zach and Ben and I will all be there. Come by the booth, get a T-shirt if you want. Um, we will be kind of attending talks and Johnny, of course, giving them. Uh, and then um, there is one other. There's a neuro uh, BFR talk that I saw. We don't. I can't remember the people that are doing that. I actually looked it up and I didn't know them. But if anybody listens to the podcast actually knows the folks that are doing the neuro BFR talk, um, send them our way. It'd be fun to have them on and, and, and chop it up um, on using blood flow restriction in, in neurologic populations. Our buddy, Brian Goonan's got a, a poster. Um, so he'll be, he'll be out there. Um, Brian from HSS there. I believe their poster is on um, using BFR in the geriatric population. So lots of cool, lots of cool stuff happening at, at CSM. So Mark Menagio's, gonna have a poster on his ms pilot yep. work and that studies <laughs> yeah that study's still going I love johnny's pronunciation. <laughs> but also hype in mark he uh he just got the va grant for parkinson's disease and bfr study so that will yeah. be starting up next right. year. Awesome. so he's yeah. kicking ass over there at colorado very cool very cool what are we on? Like five hours? Stuff, guys. I mean, like, yeah, my ass yeah, is numb. Long, man. <laughs> too. My dad's calling me. We probably got to wrap this thing up. Any, anything, anything you guys learned this year that you're just like, man, I just really wanted to kind of hit this out there, get it out there. Anything? Don't Any let Kyle host a coming? podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Go, Kyle. You got something you learned? Interesting or good? I well, I do. Yeah, I can tell you um, want to say something. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm, really, I'm fine wrapping it up. Um, but I, I, I did. I did have something on the agenda. This is. This is Let's hear it, man. Um, so I, uh, I've been working with a buddy of mine. Um, he's a, a deputy sheriff in, in the county where I live. Um, so I got to know him through some work that I have done through the years with our, our, our department or our, our county sheriffs. Um, he reached out to me, he's getting discharged from PT 
and he's like Kyle and this guy he's kind of like an amateur bodybuilder dude he's he looks like Mr. Clean he's huge like six five big old broad shoulders and just you know muscles kind of everywhere and so very used to resistance training and so he knew kind of what I was doing with BFR I'd talked to him a little bit about it here and there super interested you know kind of before he had told me um like any true meathead he went ahead and just did both knees at the same time um and then uh gets discharged from pt so he's like four months five months post-op and he texts me and he says hey man you know i'm i'm getting cut loose from pt my range of motion is great but my quads suck like they're just not you know they're not strong i i you know it's even kind of just hard to sort of walk normally and he was wondering if bfr might really be helpful with him and i said well gosh man you know i mean it kind of sounds like maybe but you're also this far out you know we tend to kind of think we might be able to load you by now so at any at any rate i i go out i look at him and, and he was just so far behind so so we started bfr with him um just to kind of get him going um his one leg did great it actually you know within probably like two or three weeks of doing bfr we probably could have just kind of transitioned to sort of traditional loading but but he had another limb his other limb his right leg um really even having a hard time you know just doing unweighted long arc quad like could never get the the full knee extension actively on his own right and so, you know, in my head, I thought, all right, well, maybe he's just weak, right? And we just kind of get him stronger in what range he has, and that kind of comes back. Um, and he saw some improvement from doing what we did, but but that just didn't really – didn't really get him over the hump that I needed to get him over. And so it just so happened I was listening to a podcast um, with Lynn Snyder-Mackler on – it was the JOSPT podcast. Claire Ardern hosted it. I think that's how you say her name. She has the the coolest voice and accent. Like if like I if that voice would put me to sleep in a heartbeat. Um, just as an aside, but um, Lynn Snyder Mackler was on. She's been on a few different times. Um, but Dr. Mackler kind of threw in this little nugget um, about in ACLs where they've used the bone tendon bone graft. Um, sometimes that patella tendon will kind of stretch out. And she's like, you know, it kind of makes it hard to get fully extended. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I've tried neuromuscular stim with my buddy. I've tried all these different things. Let me, let me try this with him. And so basically what they do to address that is they, you need to get the hip in extension, right? Because typically if you're doing a, like a, a long arc quad kind of movement, you need to be, you, you're typically in like a seated position. So you're in say 90 degrees of hip flexion or something like that. If you're on a, on a, you know, you're in kind of this shortened rectus femoris type position. So, but if you extend that hip and you get tension through the rectus, um, it actually looks like in these people that um, have this problem where that tendon has kind of stretched out, they're able to create enough force that they can go through that full arc of motion. And so um, I did this with my buddy for him. I laid him prone on a bench and we had a, a cable system that I rigged up to kind of hook onto his foot. And sure enough, man, he was able to prone? extend that knee prone. Yeah. Through the oh, full range okay. Okay. and control it. Yeah. And we've been able to load it now, you know? And so we're kind of doing this hybrid thing of I'm loading him up in that manner, but then I'm also kind of using some BFR in a low loaded fashion with neuromuscular stem to, to kind of hit that. So it was pretty impactful for me in terms of just like, 
how to, well, for one, I was like, I'm not getting what I need out of him. And I'm not really sure why, you know, and then when I heard that, I thought, oh, this is going to be a, the perfect thing to try. So, so for those of you that, you know, work with folks after ACL reconstruction, total knee, if you see this where people just cannot seem to produce enough force to create that full knee extension, maybe that's what's going on, you know, um, and it seemed to be what's going on with him. It's definitely made a huge improvement in how he's feeling um, and his gait and that sort of thing. He still has some deficits in strength. Um, and so we could kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole of why that might be, but he's had months and months and months of basically ambulating and locking that knee as quickly as he could because he couldn't control those last few degrees of, of knee extension. So that, that's been a, that was a cool experience for me. Um, so it's helping. It is helping. huh? Yeah, it really that's is. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you yeah. see that with the Achilles, you know, if that thing gets stretched, yeah. it's screwed it's so hard. That's that tension is, is so important. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That is a good story, Kyle. Thanks. <laughs> How's that for uh, closing out? That is. That's interesting. The podcast. So do I get All to right. host the podcast again then, Johnny? Did I, did I redeem myself? I What's that? Zoom That's just said, clip. we've run out of cloud. We've run out of cloud storage, it says. So <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> uh, awesome. oh, gosh. All right, guys. All well, right. That was fun. Nice end of year. Thanks, everybody. Happy holidays to everybody yeah. out there. Looking forward to a, a fun 2023. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Peace out. Yep. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before you get out of here. Quick moment just to say thanks for listening to the podcast. I think we've probably said it two or three different times now, but we really mean it. Um, but we also want to make sure that you, when you listen to this podcast, that you understand it's, it's not medical advice. We, we do our best to make sure the information that we give through this podcast is as accurate as it can be, but it should not be used to treat patients. Those decisions need to be made by a physician, by the appropriate rehab clinician, those people that are licensed to care for that individual in that particular state, nation, etc. And so this, is, this also goes for any guests that we bring on the podcast. They're not providing medical advice. This information that you have received here as entertainment should not be taken in that way at all. And it should not also it should neither be used as expert witness or testimony in any sort of legal proceedings. So um, thanks for listening to that and, and understanding that. And we will see you next time. Or wait, we're not going to see. We'll we'll hear. No, we'll listen. You'll you'll hear us. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>